Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I am Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling, of course, is my friend, co-host, and awesome guy, Adam the Awesome. Would that be your Dungeons & Dragons name, Adam the Awesome? Well, my character is actually named, I have two, I have a character named Rakad, and I have a character named (laughs) Hudson. So, yeah, I could I could go with Adam Adam the Wise. Yeah, I have two types of characters that I play. I have a, a wizard character, which would be similar to Will's character in Stranger Things. And I have a what they call a fighter character. So a character that is just like a tank. You know, they, they just go into battle wearing full armor, shield, sword, and they have what are called a lot of hit points, meaning you can, they can take a lot of damage. Whereas my wizard character is very, uh, and I wouldn't say he's weak, but he if he gets hit, he's going to die. <laughs> he's, okay. okay. He's, not, he's not the best. He's somebody you keep in the background. You, you protect him. But he's very powerful if he casts a spell. So so it's R- Rakad? Is that what you said? Rakad was one. He was, yeah, uh, one of my characters, yeah. Does he have this is last name Ricardo? Ricard Ricardo? No? no. Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo oh. Montalban. <laughs> that was good. I like that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to season two, episode four of Stranger Things, entitled Will the Wise. Good alliteration there. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to you about this episode. This is the second of two, directed by one of our favorite directors, Sean Levy. I'll just be blunt with you he never shortchanges us when it comes to character heavy emotion and that goes for his movies and we've seen in the last season the episodes that he directed definitely emotionally driven and i really wanted to just kind of begin with that i saw so many great performances in this episode adam that were just tugging at my heartstrings there were moments that we'll get into I just think it's it's not just directing. I get that when we talk about TV shows or movies specifically, we really give credit to, oh yeah, that's a great Nolan film or that's a great Michael Bay film. No, it's not. A, I would never say that's a great Michael Bay film because that would just be blasphemy. But you get my point. The fact that there is a creative team behind this and a lot of this comes from the writer's room. So credit to the writers, Sean Levy, his whole team of people just bringing us a fantastic I won't call it a second part, but a fantastic second follow-up episode from the first one that he directed. Yeah, I agree. He's clearly tackling two episodes that are, as you said, very character-driven, a lot of development. There's not a ton of action, I would say, in terms of there's no fighting. There's nothing like that, right? These are very much character episodes about relationships, about people's pasts, kind of digging deeper and what makes these people tick. So he's obviously got the the chops here to handle and to work with the actors. And yeah, you've got some, especially we'll get into it. We've got some incredible performances by the kids in particular, uh, Noah Schnapp, who plays Will, is just delivering in this episode. (laughs) This is an episode that I think since the start, we haven't gotten a Will heavy episode because obviously most of the first season was searching for him. He didn't have really any screen time at all. So this is a real breakout performance for him in the series that 
I was delighted to see. Yeah, he definitely was uh, <laughs> shortchanged in the first season. So I, I, I feel like they're trying to make up for it a little bit because the other three boys and in this season, of course, now we have Max as well. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of characters that you have to develop. And he clearly didn't get nearly as much of that in the first season. So I feel like they're trying now to make up for that a little bit. Well, they did a really good job. I yeah. fully believe that they succeeded in making up for that. One other emotional bit before we get into the actual story. Bob was not in this episode, which made my no. heart sad. But that's okay. That's okay. I'm sure he'll be back in the Bobmobile, giving us lots of great stories that we can take into our dream worlds and hopefully fend off evil carnival people or whatever he wants to do. <laughs> All right, so the episode kicks us off at the school, and this is actually where the previous episode left off. I like this technique because it really puts us in a place where if you're binge-watching this, it feels very seamless. Great, perfect. It does, it's just yeah. a continuation. But if you're watching it in a separated kind of vantage point like we are, it's a great way to just get us right in, into the action. Yeah, so that Will's in that trance in the field. I think it's Joyce who's running out there with Mike. I really love this shot because they're trying to wake him up. Is there a particular name for this technique? I mean, I would call it like a 360, but this rotation around, is there a particular name for that kind of camera shot? It's most likely the they're using a, a steady cam, which is just a, a camera that's kind of mounted on a harness and the camera operator can move, just walk in circles and walk out wherever they want. And the camera, it, it kind of keeps itself very stable, very level, whereas as opposed to like a shaky cam handheld approach, which I think this was a lot more fluid in terms of the panning that they were doing. So that's probably what they employed to get this shot. I don't know if there's any specific name for it other than you could call it the Michael Bay approach because he does that a lot, but not, <laughs> you know, but not exactly. His are usually much yeah. lower angles. I feel like Michael Bay likes to low see to the high. Sky. Low to, yeah. 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 <laughs> Everything's <laughs> so, epic. And this is yeah. not epic. What I, <laughs> no. what I like about this shot is that it does feel very claustrophobic. There's a, yeah, there's a camera that goes around this group. And then I think there's an, a separate camera that's almost inside and it, it's rotating the opposite way. So there's this really great disruptive movement that feels very chaotic. It's popping back and forth between the real world and the upside down. And it's just this insane imagery that we're reminded of from the previous episode. It's also, I think, the shortest open before we hit the credits of any of the episodes that I've seen. I think the shortest one before that was the one where Barb gets pulled back into the pool. Before the show, I don't know if the I don't know if the credits roll yeah, that. that might be it. Look. Yeah, no, but you are right. It I noticed as well that this got right into the credits rather quickly. Like there wasn't a lot of other stuff happening here in terms of the kind of cold open approach that they've taken for almost every episode. So yeah, we get right into the credits and jump back to the buyer house, I believe. Yeah, and this is where Will is describing his experience in the field. I really love how Joyce engages with him. You can see her level of empathy, how she wants to protect him, how she wants to fight for him in this scene. I was almost reminded in little ways, this is kind of how my wife is with our son, mm. because he has this sensitive spirit to him, this kind of very empathetic, 
I won't say he's emotional. That's a terrible way to say it. He's just, he's got a high sensitivity to mm-hmm. things. So he's very aware of his feelings. I see this relationship with Joyce and Will with my wife and, and our son. You know, she says, but, but I can't help you if I don't know what's going on. So you have to talk to me, please. No more secrets. So she really interjects herself into yeah. this scene or into this this world where he is trying to just compose himself. And his face, this is, again, the one of the first bits of this performance, his face as he's describing his experience, it just breaks my heart, man. I mean, yes. he is absolutely having to re-experience this, like work through it in a way that is completely breaking him. Yeah. I have had therapeutic conversations with counselors and I've had touches of this, but nothing comes close to, I think how he's feeling having to literally immerse himself into how to describe what's happening. And he struggles with that through the episode, with how to actually articulate what it is that he's seeing, what it is he's feeling. And to me, I think that's really fantastic writing for the sake of understanding the mystery of this creature and right. of the upside down expanding on this world that we thought we knew, but nope, there's more to it than that. Exactly. Yeah. As I said, Noah Schnapp here does an incredible job and I don't know where he as a young actor, maybe 12, 13, I don't know where he had to go internally to find that performance because it was wholly believable as if he was really going through something traumatic. If there was ever a kind of Emmy clip <laughs> for an actor, that, that that's it for him. He says, Came for me. And, and I tried. I did try to make him go away. But he got me home. Well, what does that mean? I felt it everywhere. Everywhere. I, I still feel it. It just kind of gives me chills because he's finally able to describe and admit to his mom what's really happening. He clearly hasn't really been able to verbalize everything that's been happening to him. He just, something's off. Something's not right. Can you imagine if you were in his shoes after everything he's already been through, what he must be feeling? Like his world has just been torn apart. And by comparison, the other kids, as much as they've seen and done, they've got it easy. (laughs) You know, this poor kid. Yeah. And the scene ends with such a great set of lines from Joyce. She says, It's okay. Listen, look, look at me. I will never, ever let anything bad happen to you ever again. Whatever's going on in you, we're going to fix it. I will fix it. I promise. I'm here. (sighs) The way she actually almost stops herself, she puts herself in that position like, no, this is my responsibility. I'm going to take care of this. It's such a powerful moment. And the pinpoint, the exclamation point at the end of the scene is as she's holding him, the expression on her face of anger and fear. Oh my gosh. It's like, okay, you have just let mama bear out 10 times over. (laughs) Yeah. You're going down. Whatever you are, I don't care how powerful you are. 
Mama Joyce is coming to get you, and you better start running. I don't yeah. know what you are, but you need to run with those <laughs> those shadow tentacles or whatever. But you're you're gone, dude. Yeah, and and it's funny too because she's you know we've seen Winona Ryder in this series so far, and in, in a lot of frantic scenes, yeah, sometimes <laughs> chewing the scenery a little bit, and here she's much more reserved. But it makes sense because she can't. Even if she is feeling frantic inside and chaotic inside, she can't express that outwardly right now because she has to yeah. instill calmness to her son. She has to communicate nothing but it's okay. I'm here. We'll, t- we'll fix this. We'll take care of it. But like you said, you see in her eyes that she's still got that anger and frantic emotional response, but she's just like burying it down so that it doesn't make matters worse with Will. Yeah. And if that performance wasn't enough to kind of get your emotions going, the next scene just kind of amps it up to 11. Oh, yeah. We move back to Hopper's cabin. 11 returns. And I think that this is what we call the full throttle like engagement of emotion with parent-child relationships. The yelling between Hopper and 11 is just absolutely intense. This is kind of familiar to me. Now, Let me just preface this by saying I do not yell at my child like this. I've never called him a brat. I've never told him to grow the hell up. But I will say that I've thought similar things where I've gotten so frustrated at his childlikeness that I'm like, why can you not just act like what I want you to act like? (laughs) Right, right. But I watch this and there's something so incredible about the rawness of this conversation and everything that's going on. And if you took out the telekinetic craziness that's going on. This is basically a parent-child relationship. This is like a dad and a daughter, which is really interesting. A mother-son followed by a dad-daughter. I think that that was very much intentional when it came to actually how we splice these scenes together. And so they start yelling back and forth, and then Hopper ends up grounding her. (laughs) And I like that Elle essentially is just furious at him for keeping her cooped up. That's the crux of the issue is that she wants freedom. She wants to go out. And he, of course, wants the opposite because she says, you lie, you lie. And I like when Hopper says, I don't lie. I protect and I feed and I teach. And all I ask of you is that you follow three simple rules, three rules. And you know what? You can't even do that. Like to him, those are his jobs. Protect her feed her and teach her. He hasn't quite figured out how to be empathetic as a parent, how to deliver beyond those sort of primal needs that she has to be protected, fed, and taught. He needs to grow up as well in that sense. He needs to mature as a parent, but he thinks he's in the right because he thinks he's doing everything he's supposed to do, and all she has to do is follow his three rules, and if she can't do that, then she's a brat. It's a tough scene because it's amplified by the fact that she, she's using her powers to throw <laughs> a book at him, to move a couch, knocking him over, knock over bookshelves, slamming her door. And of course, the final touch is that she screams at the top of her lungs and shatters all the windows in the cabin. And Hopper's just left there like in shock, like, what's going on here? You know, I've, I'm covered in glass and mm-hmm. my cabin's in ruins. <laughs> But what makes that scene so wild is that that's not the craziest part. That's not the most intense part. It's everything that leads up to it. It's when he says, 
something, you know, the things like, congratulations, you just graduated from no TV for a month to no TV ever. I mean, we've said that to our child. Oh, yeah. Except replace TV with tablet or switch or whatever. Right. And what happens? Exactly what she did. Now, again, he didn't throw books at us with his mind, but he got really mad and he has thrown things. So all of this stuff is so realistic to a parent-child relationship where you have this dialogue that it just goes up, 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 and up. And one of the things that, this is a little little counseling session, one of the things that we are trying to learn and we're continuously trying to practice is when he elevates, we don't. Like we don't try to match his pitch or his intensity because it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's what happened here. And the whole scene is just kind of gradually, and then it just amps up really quickly, where it's like she's coming in from being out past curfew. I mean, it feels like that. Yeah. He comes in, she's like, basically, like, welcome home. You know, glad you're back. And then it just lays, he lays into her and she lays into him. It's, it's uncomfortably amazing is what the only way I could describe it because it feels accurate. But then you throw in literally books flying everywhere right. and glass breaking from somebody's mind. And it's like, that's not completely my kid, but it's probably a variation of a lot of parent-child relationships. And we're, uh, I think both of our kids aren't quite as old as 11 is here. So I think we're getting in a couple of years, we may have those moments that are similar to this. I think everyone, I mean, every kid can remember when they had this moment with their parents where they were just furious and, you know, they blew up at each other. So it, it could be coming for both of us. But the, the other That's interesting okay. thing about <laughs> this scene is that it has a famous line that has since become a new TikTok trend. And it's when Elle says, You are like Papa! And he's like, oh, really? You think I'm like that psychotic, you know, scientist? And and apparently this, I, I don't really use TikTok, but apparently this line is now being used all over the place on TikTok by young younger people who are using it as sort of an expression of denial with something else that's going on in their personal lives. They say, you are like Papa. And so it's just, that sort of shows you where this show, how this show has become part of the kind of cultural zeitgeist of you know yeah. our country right now, that these lines from season two of Stranger Things from 2017 are resurfacing and becoming trends or memes, if you will. It shows you how impactful this series and these characters have become yeah it's a phenomenon and (laughs) i'm excited to continue to enjoy the phenomenon (laughs) as we get into later seasons so the uh, the episode moves forward we get a quick kind of moment with jonathan he comes back to his house and he sees joyce and will asleep which i think is really kind of nice it's really sweet probably the reaction the response that comes from a really intense moment with these two but of course, it's a Stranger Things. It's not going to stay with the awe, you know, music, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's going to give us this close-up of Will's eyes just going nuts behind his closed eyelids. And I have no idea what that is. I'm assuming that he's still experiencing what he later describes in detail. Right. But I right. don't know at this point. And so it's just like, what's happening behind those eyes? I don't well, really know. And what that, you know, if you've ever seen like a sleep study where they study somebody's sleep overnight. You can see when someone's in REM sleep or that rapid eye movement period where they're actually in dream state that your eyes do kind of move a little bit under your eyelids, but nothing like this. Yeah. And I'm kind no. of I was like, how did they achieve that? Did they tell him like, 
move. I tried doing it. It kind of hurts trying to move your yes. eyes around with your eyelids closed. It's like they were jumping back and forth, just up and down. Like it was, it looked painful because I couldn't figure out how they, unless they did something digitally, but it looked authentic. Like he was doing something as an actor. He was moving his eye, his actual eyeballs under the lid, just all over the place. And it, I don't know. It, it was, it was messed up. <laughs> Creep factor four out yeah. of six, I think, or five, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I'm glad we didn't spend too much time on that. We we end up going to Mike's house. Yeah, uh, they're having breakfast. I don't see egos. I think I see toast. And Nancy asks to quote, I put air quotes, spend the night at a friend's house <laughs> <laughs> where they're going to enjoy romantic comedies, doing nails and gossip. I guess you can't beat that. What's not surprising about that, Adam, is. Naive mom's like, that sounds great. You should do yeah. that because I have no idea that you're doing nefarious things. Yeah, she smiles and she says, sure, sounds like fun. Like almost yeah. like she wishes she could be there, you know, like that sounds yeah, like something right. I would have fun doing. Again, I, I'm not belittling her parenting because she clearly has a young, you know, a toddler that she's spending most of her time with and she's got a, a do nothing husband. <laughs> So, so hey, sleeping I, in the recliner is something. Yeah, Adam. yeah, sleeping in the recliner is something. I can attest to it. He's making of. the big bucks, right? <laughs> making, yeah, doing whatever he's doing. Being a patriot—that's what he's doing. That's right. Making big bucks, being a patriot. <laughs> <laughs> so Nancy takes off with Jonathan. I think we find out from the previous episode they're going to go to the park to meet up with Barb's parents. Right. Then the episode cuts over to the buyer's house. Go back there. Joyce, appropriately enough, is blowing up the police station, looking for Hopper. She's calling over and over again. I just keep thinking how if they just had cell phones, all these issues would be resolved. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. Or pagers. At least a pager. Yeah. It yeah. used to be this hard to get a hold of somebody. And <laughs> not anymore. Now it's too easy. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I see, sometimes I wish we'd go back to that where I'm like, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't. I left my phone on silent. That's my reason for not calling people back. My phone was on silent. I went fishing for the weekend. Sorry. Yeah. No I mean, phones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've intentionally left my phone at home for extended periods just to see how long I could do it. And then you start twitching and sweating. Yeah. <laughs> my eyes started doing that thing that wills do, yeah. you know, it's just, it's yeah. just crazy. withdrawal <laughs> symptoms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Will comes in to get his temperature checked and it's like, I think it's like 95 degrees. I couldn't really tell. That's what I thought time too, I watched yeah, which is, yeah which is cooler than it should be. It's cooler. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had a temperature be that low. I think it's been like 97, but nothing like in the mid-90s. Like this is yeah. bizarre. And of course, that's the beginning of the hints that we get into later. And then he starts describing how he feels like he hasn't woken up yet, which is, that's a fairly descriptive thing. Like you're in this groggy state. I, I always think right. about when I wake up in the morning, either by an alarm or when I wake up from a longer nap beyond like half an hour, that yeah. kind of half half asleep, I kind of feel like, ooh, do I need to go back to bed? But once I get out of bed, I'm good. I think that's kind of how I felt he was describing it. Yeah, and it makes sense because, as I mentioned a minute ago, the the REM sleep state, that kind of deep sleep where you're dreaming, where your your mind is really focused on something. If you, whether it be artificially through an alarm or through somebody waking you up, if you break that cycle, right, that sleep cycle, there's a period where you're kind of readjusting or recalibrating yourself to be like, oh, I'm awake now. I'm not sleeping. And, and maybe he's in that state perpetually. You know, he's stuck yeah. with having that feeling. He just can't quite break out of that feeling mm -hmm. that he's still, he was just sleeping, just dreaming. Makes sense. Yeah. So Joyce tries to help him out by drawing a bath for him. 
and she just goes in there and starts running the water. And let me just, I think it's important to know that in a horror genre, anytime you see close-ups of somebody turning a bathtub spigot, nothing good comes from that. Bathtubs are not good things in horror movies. I just, I don't see anything positive coming from a bathtub inside a horror or suspense movie. It's it's just bad news. Unless you're L, where you you use the bathtub to... Uh, yeah, but, you know. but to take that theory further, she gets in the bathtub and what does she see? Gross monsters and wow. demogorgons that she lets out. I mean, I, it's just, there it is. Theory proven. Don't use bathtubs in your monster movies <laughs> or in your horror movies. Bad things will happen. Just don't take baths in general. You're just stewing your own filth. <laughs> <laughs> Well, showers aren't much better, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> at least the dirt falls down in a shower. You know, it, it, you're not just swimming in it, <laughs> right? <laughs> I never thought about that. That you know, if you yeah. have dirt on your body, you're just basically like regurgitating it around your body. Yeah, you're just like here. Body, let me so. rub that dirt back into my body now, <laughs> in a different part. That's so gross. <laughs> never taking a bath again. <laughs> nope. <laughs> The last episode leaves us with a question mark about about Dart. Dustin has him, puts him in his hat, and this episode picks up on that. We go to Dustin's house where he's put Dart back in his terrarium and gives him mm-hmm. his daily ration of nougat. And then um, we go to the school. Dustin's like, what are you guys doing? These guys are outside dumpster diving like they're looking from like yesterday's <laughs> lunch or something. And they're like, oh, look who decided to show up. Lucas comes out, which I think... Well, I, I can believe that if somebody says you stink as you come out of the dumpster, I'll believe that. But he looked very clean. Like, I would expect, like, wet things to be on his clothes. But apparently that's a very clean trash can. It just emits a very bad odor. Yeah, maybe the janitor at that school does a good job of tightly bagging up every trash bag so that nothing ever is loose. You know, nothing is out. But yeah, it could still smell. A dumpster is going to smell because no one cleans a dumpster like that. One of those big, I think it was green, one of those large kind of industrial dumpsters. Yeah, that's not something that anyone comes around and like scrubs and cleans and tries to take that odor out. So it's got an accumulation of years and years of garbage odor. So I think anyone that's dumpster diving, as you put it, is going to not smell well, not smell good. I don't know. Well, with everything that happened at Hawkins, I would think that you got to stay as clean as possible inside or outside a dumpster. So kudos to the janitor for keeping things nice and spick and span, even if you can't get rid of the uh, of the smell. <laughs> yeah. Just a note, they are looking for Dart because they don't know that Dustin took him home. And yeah. I think it's kind of kind of stinks because Dustin's kind of like, oh, you guys are wasting your time, you know, looking yeah. at the garbage for this thing. I, I have him at home. He feels like he can't tell them. He's worried, I think. Yeah. Rightfully so, that Dart might be taken away from him <laughs> or sure. killed. It both metaphorically and literally stinks for Dustin. Yes, it does. Well, it literally stinks for Lucas, but metaphorically for Dustin. <laughs> so. Right. This next scene is really interesting because it has this great use of voiceover. I think this is a testament to good cinematography and good writing, where you have Mr. Clark in class interconnected with Will's house, and he's talking about this um, reaction that all creatures have that describes fear we encounter danger, our hearts start pounding. Our palms start to sweat. These are the signs of the physical and emotional state we call 
fear. Yeah, Will looks like he's afraid of the bath. Then we get these kind of glimpses of some weird tunnels. And um, in the meantime, you've got Joyce in the other room, who is still calling Hopper. I think Hopper gets the award for best voicemail message ever. <laughs> I, I I caught this, yeah. Hey, Reef Jim, I'm probably doing something incredible right now. And that just fades out. So I'm going to put that on my voicemail. I'm going to be like, hi, you've reached Patch. And I'm probably doing something pretty amazing. But you can call me back and maybe I'll get back with you. I'm like recording nice an deep. incredible podcast right now. I can do that. <laughs> and then uh, Will comes out. This is a creeper moment for me. He goes, he likes it cold. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening here? Are you possessed? Is this what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, because he, before he says that, he's communicating that the water in the tub is too hot. And clearly, Joyce's whole purpose here is to raise his body temperature, thinking that his core temperature is too cold and that he needs to get it up so that he's closer to normal. But when he says he likes it cold, clearly that means something. And I can't say what this it means does. something. Yeah, this means something. This is important. <laughs> I'll just say that it's something that doesn't fully or really get explained until season four. Oh my gosh, why'd you do that? That's so unfair. <laughs> I, 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 the reason I'm saying this is that <laughs> watching it again since 2017, it's interesting to me here how they're starting to plant little seeds of things that will pay off in season three and season four and probably season five. So it's just interesting to me that they really did know they had mapped out where the story was going from the get-go. And to me, that's what a good show should do. And we've talked mm -hmm. offline about shows where clearly they didn't really know where they were going or they did, but they didn't know how they were going to get there. And, and I think this now solidifies for me that they did know where they were going right here. We just don't know as viewers watching it for the first time what that means. And I, I like that. Yeah. They're anyway. going through tunnels. They're going yes. through tunnels and yeah. doing weird things. <laughs> yeah. That's all we really know. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, so, so Joyce is calling Hopper, and clearly yeah. he's not at the station. He's going back to the cabin. I think this is a really, I would call it a kind of a, back and forth like fun tension moment where he starts to apologize he says listen um about last night i uh he <laughs> it looks like he's gonna apologize but he's like i want this place cleaned up by the time i get back and then maybe i'll consider fixing the tv you hear me <laughs> it's just like oh man it's like yeah. i'm not putting my guns down i'm not putting my guard down i'm not doing that but he, he does add and maybe I'll consider fixing the TV because he had, if we didn't mention it, he had like yanked the cords out of the back of the television. So it clearly, I mean, I guess you could splice them together, but it, it probably needs to be repaired in a uh, a more professional, you know, Bob Newby could take care of Bob. It him, this know. is why Bob needed to be in the episode. Yeah. He could have fixed the television. Maybe he'll fix it next yeah. episode. We'll see. Yeah. And he finds out that Joyce has called eight times, according to his, his secretary. And she right. says, please, for my sake, please call her back. <laughs> was that Flo? It's I think Flo. it was Flo, right? It might Flo have been Flo. Yeah. yeah. Flo keeps yeah. him in check, man. I love it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> this is where, I, again, I think that Hopper clearly doesn't have a, a phone in his cabin, which probably doesn't isn't wired. You know, there's probably no telephone lines running out that far. 
He should, though, have something like a ham radio, something that he could utilize for the police to be able to reach him if he's out there hunting or fishing or something. I get that he's trying to stay off the grid with L, but having something like that would be a way for him to at least be able to be reached for emergency. He's the police chief, right? You can't really be away for too long, unreachable. You would think you would yeah. have some type of... But he's got reputable deputies. That's true. So. He's got two <laughs> hilarious deputies. Yes, love them. So then the episode moves to the school gym, and Steve and Billy are going one-on-one on the basketball court <laughs> yet again. <laughs> I think Billy does a fantastic basketball move. And this was surprising to me. I was like, okay, so he's just going to keep kind of showing who's the big man on campus now. But instead, Billy offers Steve some advice on how to play basketball. Next time, take the charge. It was kind of a weird exchange because I really thought, like in that moment, like, hey, he's maybe he's saying something behind that comment. I felt like it was kind of an olive branch. And that kind of pays itself off in the shower later when he's talking to to Steve, he says, don't sweat it, Harrington. Today just isn't your day. And then he kind of rags him about, give up, Nancy. There's other girls. He didn't use girls yeah. <laughs> in the ocean yep. in his own uh, Billy way. But yeah, I thought this was a, this was an interesting term because Billy has sort of, I don't know if he's befriending Steve or if he sees something in Steve that like, hey, maybe we could form some kind of like bad boy alliance or something. Yeah. Like, yeah he, there's something going on here. And he kind of like, they're naked showering and he like shuts the shower off. He doesn't slap him on his backside, but he does kind of like slap him on the shoulder. It's like, uh, yeah, this is a little, I'm not sure what's going on here. Public <laughs> showers. Little... No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is just awkward. We also, in this scene, I find it interesting that we get the return of Steve's buddy from the first season. Um, oh, I think it's Tommy. Yeah. I think the last time we saw him, they were in that parking lot of the, like the mini mart, whatever. Yeah. And Steve, essentially, it, he had just had that fight with Jonathan Byers. He was all bloodied up and he stormed off, basically. And they never, I assumed, were no longer friends. But here he is yeah. uh, in the showers with them talking. And he's bringing up Jonathan again in the shower. Like about how. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah he's he's just a, he's just kind of like egging him on, kind of yeah, poking just, the bear a little bit. Yeah. Anyway, just interesting to see his face again. I didn't. I wasn't sure if we would ever see that character again after that first season, but here we go. I hope he gets killed by a Demogorgon. <laughs> That's my, my Christmas wish is that he gets killed by a Demogorgon at some point in the series. He and his girlfriend. <laughs> no, I don't think... Whatever. Yeah, we haven't seen her again, I don't think, but... <laughs> Maybe she broke up with him. Yeah. <laughs> don't know. <laughs> She's becoming friends with Nancy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So then we move to the park where uh, Jonathan and Nancy are waiting for Barb's mom and dad. I believe they're waiting for both of them because she talked to her mom, but they said something in the scene about they're not here yet. So I'm assuming that they were both going to make it to the park, or at least they were planning to, and they're late. But I put a question mark behind that, too, because I don't think they're late. I think they have just chosen not to show up. Or someone stopped them. I don't know. Ooh, look at that. Come through with the little conspiracy theory. I like it. Well, that makes a lot of sense considering they have like spies all around them. They're looking at like every other person (laughs) thinking that some kid on a merry-go-round is a spy or a lady with a puppy. But they're not wrong. I mean, they get in the car and that there are other folks in the park watching them. They take them to Hawkins' lab. Yeah. (laughs) And I just want to add that the editing and sound design in that scene right before they get in the car 
it's amazing and it really amplifies mm-hmm. that paranoia that they are both yeah. experiencing in that moment yeah. you really do get a sense like oh are they all looking at me you know and i think we've all had that kind of weird feeling where like you think somebody's looking at you and you're like are they are they staring at me or are they just kind of looking in my general direction so it, it's a well constructed scene it absolutely is i think it's um something that i think is really well done in this series is the sound design and appropriately mm-hmm. enough because you have to have that to really kind of get you immersed into this weird world that we're living in with Hawkins. So exactly. Hopper answers the call, the ninth call and decides to go over to the buyer house. He walks in and he's kind of taken aback because like every window and door is open and keep in mind, this is like November 3rd or something. So it's cold in Indiana in November. Yep. I think you would be able to attest to that living in the North that Mm -hmm. it's probably cold up there in that time. And uh, we see that Will is somewhat nonchalant about his possession. At least that was my take. I don't have to think. I just know things now. Things I never did before. The way he delivers that line, Adam, I think is what makes that feel nonchalant. It's almost as if this thing that is controlling him or that is inside him, possessing him, I guess we're going to say, has kind of immersed himself to a point where he is almost talking cohesively or in conjunction with this creature and so it's sort of living passively in him that's kind of the way i describe it but the way he delivers those lines i think reinforce that right almost sort of like venom like a symbiotic relationship if you yeah will. yeah that's a great that's a great point a great example so then we get to will describing these memories he calls them now memories in the back of his head it's like they're growing, spreading, killing the memories. I don't know. Now that's really ambiguous. What yeah. is this about? Both Hopper and Joyce are really trying to understand him. And again, another great performance from him. He is so frustrated that he can't explain with words. And Joyce gets this great idea seeing the will the wise uh, cartoon drawing, (laughs) color drawing, the crayon drawing. I can't get my words right. And she says, hey, maybe you can't speak or say it, but maybe you can draw it. And then you have Will take all this paper and just start scribbling. Now, this kind of was a freak out moment because I'm like, has he just gone nuts? Because he's just scribbling. Like he's not drawing intricately. He's not even drawing lines. He's just scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. And of course, we find out here in a little bit what that is. But in the meantime, there's a phone call that's happening in the buyer house and turns out it's Mike. So we cut back over to Mike and we get to the AV room at the school where he has gathered everybody sans max yet again. Mm -hmm. She gets the cold shoulder and they're doing their debrief about what's happened to Will. So Mike sort of betrays Will's trust here. Will doesn't want anybody else knowing about this, but I think Mike's having to make the call and say, here's what's happening. So we get kind of a breakdown to the other guys about this thing that might be taking over Will's body at this point. Exactly. Yeah, and it is interesting how Mike, again, was the one to say to Max, party members only. He clearly does not want Max involved. And Mm -hmm. and I guess you can understand, and this also picks up a little bit later when Max and Lucas are arguing about the same thing. They had this shared experience the previous year that it's almost impossible to explain to somebody new. Even if you want to, they're not going to believe you. I think we talked about this in one of the 
previous episodes. Like, who's mm-hmm. going to believe that story, right? If it was something right. like, oh, yeah, he was kidnapped by a serial killer and kept in a basement, but they eventually found him. Like, you could say that and they'd be like, oh, that's horribly traumatic, but I understand what you're telling me. She would have no way of understanding anything that they're really talking about. So it does make sense that they're reluctant to include her on this particular conversation. Yeah. So watching this whole sequence play out, we get the reveal that the way it's described is that, was it the site? I can't remember the description, but having, um, having beyond sight or some kind of, it's a D and D term. True sight. True sight. Thank you. Yeah. So Mike says, this isn't D and D this is real life. So he's really trying to kind of bring the connection back to, Hey, we, we don't, we can't continue to make these analogies because it doesn't really connect us to what's really happening here. He also makes the comment that Dart may actually have something to do with this, which I find a really interesting connection there. I, I, I guess he explained it in a way where, hey, Dart's got some stuff going on with him. But I started making that connection with the whole cold thing where Dart doesn't like the light. He likes right. it dark. He likes it cold. Now Will does. So the same kind of entity. I mean, clearly we knew it came from the upside down, but something is connecting these two you know, what it is, I don't think we know at this point. No, no. And I agree with you. It's interesting. And I like that they added that line about this is real life. This isn't D&D because in the first season, and it was a great tool that they were able to use for these kids, use the D&D language and characters and abilities and creatures as a way to equate or explain everything that they were experiencing and it just happened to kind of line up, make sense. But at a certain point, it feels like, yeah, they've gone beyond D&D being an analogy for things that they're, that they're experiencing. Yeah. It's, it's gone way past that at this point. It's a grown-up comment. I think it's right. kind of a way to yeah. let them know, hey, we're, we're maturing in this whole ideology. Last season was all about, oh, we're going to call it the Upside Down. And now it's really like calling it Hawkins, Indiana. It's just another part of the story that doesn't feel so far away. It feels very close. Right. So before the scene ends, I wanted to point out that Dustin is rocking a lunchbox and I believe he's in seventh grade. So I don't know if that's something that's common back in the eighties. I don't remember having a lunchbox that far into my education, but I do love the fact that he's got the Ghostbusters logo stamped on the side of it. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I think Dustin is a true individual that whether or not the other kids are still using lunch boxes or not. If he wants to, he's going to do it. He doesn't really, of all of them, I feel like he's not one to care what other people think of him. And I kind of like that about him. He, he is who he wants to be and he doesn't apologize for it, if you will. And I will admit, I probably stopped using lunch boxes in probably fourth grade. I think I was brown bagging it. If I wasn't eating cafeteria yeah. food, I was just, you know, mm-hmm. it was a little brown paper bag that you took to yeah. school with you. And that way you could throw it away when you're done. You know, you didn't have to lug around this heavy metal <laughs> lunchbox afterwards. So yeah, it's uh but anyway, I I like Dustin. He's probably my of the care of the kids, he's probably my favorite. I mean, he definitely has an individual streak to him, and I think that's yeah. really a cool thing. Very confident in who he is. A uh, little bit of trivia here. I found this out recently as I was building mm. Ecto one, uh my Lego playset. My Lego playset, my Lego construction vehicle. set. Sorry, my construction set. <laughs> Speaking of being mature and using mature yeah. language, I found out that the the ghost in the logo, his name is Moogly. 
Like it was named oh. by the creators, by uh, Reitman, was named I, Moogly. I did not know that. Yeah, it was in, I think, page 200 of 300 of my instructions. <laughs> like, That's, hey, did you know this? Is your... Hey, you learned something. Every, I thought I knew everything about that first Ghostbusters movie, but little I guess. little nugget there for you, yeah. Adam. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Moogly. So every time you see it, Moogly. <laughs> well, then the episode takes us back to Hopper's cabin. We see a frustrated Eleven who starts cleaning up. And then she makes a discovery under the floor. And this is where we see boxes from like Vietnam and New York. And then there's one that says Hawkins Lab. And of course, she pulls that out. I love the camera work here because we see it from her perspective that it's upside down, which is, you know, a play on upside down, obviously. But also, this is what a person would see if they were sticking their head underneath the floor of a cabin, which, by the way, next to bathtubs, that's not something you want to do. You don't want to have under floors, under cabins, uh, floors, flooring under cabins. I also think it's probably not the best place to store all your your important paper documents. <laughs> if there's any flooding. <laughs> yeah. Rain, or I mean, fire. Yeah. Like that's just, that's the first place it's going to get ruined. So Hopper is not necessarily the best at, uh, you know, the everyday thinking. <laughs> he's a good sheriff, Adam. Yeah. yeah he's yeah, a good sheriff. That's what I said. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. He needs a woman's touch is what he needs. <laughs> he does. Yeah. And or at least a maid. <laughs> at first I was definitely a maid. And Eleven starts doing a pretty good job cleaning up the place. I think she's she comes around uh, and starts sweeping. You know, she's trying to improve herself and yeah. learn. But uh, yeah, what I was going to say is that at first I was really confused. I was like, how did he get a box full of important Hawkins Lab documents? And why is it there? And then I was like, oh, right, season one, Joyce and Hopper did their whole investigation about Hawkins mm-hmm. Lab and Brenner. And so, of course, they had all the copies that they made of the newspapers and the microfiche and all that. So it made perfect sense. But at first I was like, this is kind of convenient that she just finds a, a secret <laughs> box of Hawkins Lab papers. And I was like, no, no, they, they fully explained that season one. <laughs> so <laughs> had to go somewhere. He wasn't going to store it in the, in the, it makes sense. He wasn't going to store it in the police station. So he's got to right. put it somewhere. Yeah. Take it to Joyce's house. She's fine. She could do that. <laughs> I was hoping for a small box that would say upside down. That'd be funny. That, that or be this cool. side up, the side upside down, that kind of thing. Just With some like, like Polaroids of when they went into the upside down. like <laughs> Taking selfies, right? With their <laughs> yeah, Polaroids. Like, like, Look at us. <laughs> Look at this with the Demogorgon. Hey, it's Byers <laughs> Castle. All covered in gross. <laughs> exactly. They should have done that. They should have. I'm surprised they didn't bring a camera with them, if you think about it. (laughs) Folks at Hopkins, Hopkins, I keep saying Hopkins. Folks at Hawkins Lab. Anthony Hopkins Lab. Yeah, (laughs) we're going to just rename it for the Duffers. (laughs) Guys, this is a better name. It's a better name. It'll get a lot more acclaim if you do name it it Anthony Hopkins Lab. We just can't remember, so we've renamed it. Well, speaking of Hawkins Lab, this is where where Nathan, not Nathan. Wow, I'm I'm like all over the place. <laughs> Nathan, <laughs> who's Nathan? I don't know who that is. This is where Nancy and Jonathan end up getting taken, and they're in the I guess the briefing room. This may have been where Joyce was being interrogated yeah. by Brenner. I think this in was the, the first, same yeah, room. Yeah. First season. And, uh, you know, she she appropriately just gets mad and yells at the camera saying a-hole, which, I mean, I probably would too, because I'd be that kind of frustrated person. 
Dr. Owens comes in, man. Yeah. And he is so nonchalant about what he's about to tell them. It's almost like he's like, here, it's time for the tour of Hawkins Lab, <laughs> of the upside down gross that we're about to show you what we're doing here. And the way he talks about what happened that last week of right before Christmas is so like, yeah, we just we made abundant mistakes. And, and they're yeah. not our fault, but they're, they're abundant mistakes. And he even refers to killing Barb that way as an abundant mistake. And I'm like, right. yeah, you killed Barb. What? What's going on here, man? But he didn't. And I think that's his point. He's trying to, he's kind of saying, oh, that was a bunch of other guys. Like, now we're a yeah. new group of guys. And like, <laughs> we, we didn't do that, but we're trying to clean up after them. We're trying to make good. So, and, and from a certain point of view, you could say, yeah, it's his job. He was probably assigned to this job. He didn't yeah. choose to go there. He was like, you need to go to Hawkins. You need to take some people and figure out Mm-hmm. what happened and clean it up and you know make sure everything make sure this doesn't happen again and that's what he's trying to do you know i think he's yeah. legit legitimately trying to do that i think so too i think where where this scene works for me is the fact that it does two things one it tells us that not everybody has all the information i don't think he has all the information right. about what went down so anything with brenner and his crew that was left that previous year was just left. And so, as you said, he was brought in and said, Hey, there was a mess. When you go in, here's what I want you to do. And the explanation that he gives is so great because if you hadn't picked it up right now, which guys like me will probably in that category, he really does explain. We've got this thing that is constantly growing and we're burning it so that we can contain it. He says, The thing is, we can't seem to erase our mistake but we can stop it from spreading like it's like pulling weeds and that makes perfect sense that it does they recognize that it's something that can't go away but that it can be contained and this is where we get the russians and i'm hoping that at this point if the russians have been talked about i'm thinking the russians are going to be involved in some capacity at this point because Beyond just the uh, tongue-in-cheekness and the Cold War fear and all that stuff, I feel like the Russians are going to take some kind of initiative here. They're going to be some part of the uh, the story. But that is his reason for why he has to stop the truth of what's going on and the weeds, as he said, from spreading. Right. Because the Russians will will get to uh, get to this. Because they'll see their mistake as an opportunity to do something nefarious, which right. falls right in line with that Cold War propaganda. Exactly. And I'll just say that you're very on top of it that they are definitely planting seeds again as we continue our watch of this entire series over the next however long it takes <laughs> you will see and learn more that will please you i'm sure but yeah it's uh it's an interesting scene we're introduced to teddy who is i think the soldier who performs the burns yes mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh on a daily the basis. burning man <laughs> yeah the burn- <laughs> there you go and it just kind of occurred to me as well that yeah the fire burns the opening and will doesn't like the heat and dart doesn't like the heat and like so all this makes sense clearly the upside down is a colder place where light and heat are no bueno (laughs) right very cold very dark yeah very gremlins-esque exactly (laughs) well when we last left will he was scribbling at the buyer house and this is where the uh, the episode takes us joyce actually sees like okay what's going on here they're confused and she sees that some of the parts line up and they do this kind of cool puzzle and i got to wondering adam if in will's mind he drew them in sequence like if he was actually drawing what they call the vines 
if he was actually drawing them in order, but because it looked like chaos when they grabbed the papers, they were like, okay, this is page four of 18. This is page nine of 12 of 18. And or, or did his brain just draw what looked into like this, this is just like printer paper, right? Computer paper, you know, probably like 50 sheets of it. Was he just somehow drawing a section of it that only his brain could kind of piece together and know that they would all line up in some way yeah, I don't know. It, he was doing it so frantically that I don't know if he really knew what he was doing. I don't think he was in control. It's almost like mm-hmm. his body was just doing it, and he wasn't aware of what he was doing or why he was doing it. It just kind of was pouring out of him. Yeah. I just wish it were a numerical order because that would have been easier for Well, it would have been easier, but Joyce again <laughs> solves this mystery. It does remind me of the whole sequence in the first season when she has the revelation about the lights and the Christmas, you know, and yep. how that he can com- she can communicate with Will that way through the upside down, and it seems like they found another similar way to give Joyce like a, a puzzle to solve. <laughs> She's good at solving puzzles. She is. I feel like she would be an ideal candidate for an escape room. Like if we had to put her in <laughs> yeah. an escape room with us, she's my girl. I'm putting her putting her with me. As long as her son is in danger or jeopardy like i think that's what yes. triggers her her superpower <laughs> she's dumb otherwise right that's yeah right. She's, she's chain smoking she's <laughs> like the store. you know when the, the the mother lifts the car off their child you know that apparently is not even a real thing it's just like a urban legend but yeah that inspired bruce banner to experiment and figure something out that later became <laughs> right. Well, we know is the Incredible Hulk, the TV series. Anyway, <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> so then we're back at school and uh, we're picking up the tail end of the conversation in the AV room. Max is, of course, still pissed and she's talking to Lucas. Lucas is trying to explain to her why Eleven is different in terms of being part of this club. And again, they both, because we have this omniscient perspective, we get both of their frustrations. I'm completely on the side of both Lucas and Max because we get why he's not going to deliver that kind of information. And we also get why she's so mad because she feels completely alienated. Like, why am I even part of this? I I have these two guys that are constantly trying to get me to trick or treat with them. And then you're shutting me out of anything that I feel like I could be a, a real viable asset. And she's just like, whatever. And then she finishes off the conversation by saying, you stink, by the way. This is great. I love Lucas in this moment because he like sniffs himself. And then he goes, ah. his, his reaction is like, dang it, I am. Darn it. Yeah, sh- like, well, yeah. I mean, when did you have time to shower? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, this is all one. I'm, I think this is all one day in this episode. We're, we're not. Right. Yeah. Nothing has changed. You were in the dumpster earlier in the morning. And so clearly you're, you still stink. Yeah. And so as Max leaves, Billy sees her and she gets in the car and he urges Max to stay away from them. Now, my initial thought was maybe Billy is a racist and he doesn't want her hanging out with the black kid. But no, he said them. And so here are the thoughts, because this is what Stranger Things is doing to my brain, Adam. I'm thinking, what are his motives? Is he possessed? Is he infiltrating for the government? I mean, is he a spy? What's happening here? None of that could be true, but I want to hold all those ideas in my head because those are exciting to me. And I just feel like there's something mysterious about Billy at this point, where he is completely upset with her and completely becoming bromantic with with Steve. And I just, I don't know what's happening with him, but it really kind of intrigues me 
Yeah, he's clearly the most mysterious new character because we're getting all different sides to him and not really understanding where he's coming from. We don't really understand what the dynamic is between him and Max. It sounds like they might be step siblings because he mentions them being part of a family now. So maybe they aren't blood relatives, but they are together now. So it's possible that he's just an overprotective older stepbrother. I don't know. It, it, he's he's a bit of a, a weird guy. So we're just going to have is. to wait and see. <laughs> he has a lot of aggression <laughs> and, and anger, I think, also, that just he might just be one of those guys that doesn't know how to deal with it. And so he takes it out on whomever is around him. In this case, maybe he just feels like, I can yell at you, Max, but if those kids are bothering you, I'm going to go after them. Maybe he's frustrated that it looks like a dirty Zac Efron. I don't know. I just <laughs> that, came, that definitely came out in this episode. I was like, look, it's dirty Zac Efron playing basketball like he does, you know, and just being, this is what Troy Bolton would be looking like if he were mean and gross and in, in the, the 80s, real world. Yeah. In the was, 80s. Right? 25 No years. singing for him. Yeah. <laughs> he would say, get your head in the game, you know, that kind of exactly. thing. Like, no, don't do that, Troy. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe they'll uh, remake High School Musical with this actor and just do it in a much different way. <laughs> a darker High School a Musical? A darker, grittier. <laughs> the real High School Musical. Set in the 80s. Yeah. Set in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> and if they just called it Stranger Things, colon, High School Musical, people would watch it. So. <laughs> the spinoff. <laughs> yeah. The musical spinoff. Billy singing just some weird lyrics. Yeah. I can... I might buy off on that. Disney may not, but I will. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, Hopper gets the revelation, their vines. Right. And from from the drawings. And so we find him in the pumpkin patch. He starts digging. And then we quickly cut over to his cabin where we're picking up Eleven, reading about Jane, the daughter of Terry Ives, who was taken. And he sees a picture of Terry with Papa. Yep, a, a de-aged Matthew Modine with sideburns. Yes, <laughs> the magic of of special effects. Exactly. <laughs> I guess this is where I'm supposed to assume, as the person that hasn't seen any episodes past this, that we're yeah. meant to say, "Oh, her name is Jane," or that she is the daughter of of Terry. Maybe not, but we're putting these context clues together with her. Right. So, but I think it's reinforced by her mind travel i guess if we're going to call it that where she uses static from the radio to get that white noise to try to connect with this is another great emotional scene and she is just fantastic in this millie bobby brown i think is her her name yeah is 11 mm-hmm. she recognizes terry so they're in that dark room and terry's i promise when i watched this i covered my eyes because i was afraid that it was going to be she reaches out and this gross face of a person's going to turn around and jump scare me but no it's terry older and terry actually recognizes her and she tries to touch her but then she disappears now that's weird Mm -hmm. so i'm wondering is that just a memory is terry dead is she trying to recreate her mom or a memory of her mom i don't know again Billy's mystery, and now we've got this mystery yeah, with Terry. Yeah. No, those are all good questions, and uh, I think it's also interesting, and I honestly don't know why she's mumbling to herself in, I think she's in a rocking chair. She's saying, Bring me to the right, for the left, for 50. 
I don't know what that means. It may again, this could mm-hmm. be something that's going to pay off down the road, and even in a season we haven't seen yet. You know, that's what I like about the show is that they are planting those little little seeds that may or may not pay off down the road. But there seems to be mm-hmm. some significance to Rainbow. Like, why are you saying that? To answer one of your questions, like, why did she disappear? I would argue that she can, in this state, she can observe, hear, see what someone is doing, but maybe she can't interact physically. And as soon as she does, she perhaps like her focus breaks and it's like she loses contact with that object or person and can't can't reestablish it right away. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's my kind of thinking. Yeah, it's good thinking. And if she was dead, maybe she would she would have seen like a decaying version of her in a casket somewhere. Maybe that's again just theorizing here myself. Yeah, and so that scene ends with some just emotional yelling from Elle. She's assuming that's her mom and perhaps that her name is Jane. As you said, this is where she Mm -hmm. learns that perhaps she has a name other than Eleven. Right. And so we get a quick cut at the buyer house where Mike and Joyce are connecting on the shadow monster. They both kind of got the same aha type thing and they take off and then we move to Jonathan's car. So at this point, the Hawkins lab people have let them go and they get in the car, Jonathan and Nancy do, and it starts on the first go. So, Again, another observation, and there's there's a reason for this. It's important. Where it didn't start when they were trying to escape the park, so they had trouble starting. That tells me that somebody or some folks in the park, some of those folks from Hawkins Lab, intentionally messed up their, their car or right. did something to, to make it not start, and now it starts on the first go. I guess that's what we're meant to believe. Yeah, I think so. I think that clearly the Hawkins lab people are controlling the situation. You know, if they don't want them to go somewhere, they're not going to go. And if they are allowing them to go, then they will make it possible for them to do so. <laughs> but I yeah. still think they're being tracked or something. I, I I have a feeling that they wouldn't be, even though they're being let go. I think they know. I mean, they're listening to everyone's phone calls, so they're clearly going to keep tabs on them. Well, they're not the only ones, as we find out that the... Uh those guys, Jonathan and Nancy take off. And I don't know if you saw this, but there's this weird, so there's a great top shot of the car taking off. And Mm. it looks like there's this gunk or something like blood or like dried blood or something on top of Jonathan's car. Oh, (laughs) I I don't know what that is. If that's from a previous season. I think it's just rust. Cause if you look at some of the other shots, his car is not in the best shape. There's a lot of like orangish brownish rust spots on the, the hood and on the door. Yeah. So I think it's just patches of rust on the roof that you're seeing. But it was such a high up shot, as you said, kind of like a, uh, a helicopter <laughs> like... or drone shot. So, yeah, you couldn't really. But I think that's what it was. Yeah. Like, who did Jonathan kill? And why is he not covering <laughs> that up? Right. Yeah. yeah. So we get this reveal that they had a tape recorder and that they documented the entire conversation. This trope frustrates me to no end when I see it in any kind of story, not because it's unrealistic. It might be because that's a big tape recorder. So how you hide that the whole time, I have no idea. But more than that, anytime you see somebody reveal, oh, I recorded your conversation, 
the audio is crystal clear. There is no way that you capture that kind of audio when you have a tape recorder muffled inside your jacket. I don't get it. I mean, you would think that technology or that special effects people or creative teams would say, listen, let's let's get over this. Let's stop this. I don't care if it's 1984. Let's really let's do something about this because yeah, yeah. that it's such a frustrating thing. I agree. And they could have honestly done anything to muffle the audio slightly or even more than slightly and and still have it be audible so that it would still work. Like you would still hear what he's saying and know that it's Dr. Owens's voice that it would hold up in the court of law. But they could have just done some stuff to mess up the audio a little bit. So it sounded like it was inside her bag or wherever it was unless she had like a little maybe she had a little microphone like sticking out of her lapel or something yeah. I, I don't i don't know i, I didn't and see that's that, fine but, but yeah. show me that yeah show me yeah. show me like a little like a close-up of her hand holding a microphone and right. that way cool you know it's not going to be stereo quality and it right. should sound muffled but it should be clear enough that you can hear the dialogue right that's where i get frustrated it's like where in the world is the speaker that you, or the microphone that you're speaking into that provides this amazing quality. Right. But I think that's just a global issue I have. It, yeah. So let's fix this, people. Let's fix this. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. So they take off, and she says, let's burn that lab to the ground. I'm thinking literally, figuratively, <laughs> because they actually leave Hawkins. So I don't know where they're going, honestly. <laughs> just like, yeah, I, I honestly don't remember I do think that she means it figuratively. I don't think she's an arsonist. I don't think she's going to go there and burn to the ground unless the people that are burning the gateway trip and fall and light the whole place on fire. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but I do think that it's meant more as a figurative statement, like time for some payback. We're going to get revenge for everything you've done to the people of Hawkins. That's kind of where she's coming from. And I kind of like that as they drive out of town, I like that the sign says, you know, leaving Hawkins, come again soon. <laughs> like, yeah, we'll, we'll be back. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. Yeah, not for long. <laughs> be gone yeah. for long. But I don't remember. I'm admitting I don't remember where they're going in this next episode. It's been too long. I can't recall. We'll figure it out soon, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> well, close to the end of the episode, we get back to Dustin's house. The first shot we see is a close-up shot of Muse cat food being poured. And I had a feeling. I had a feeling. I was like, what's going on here? (laughs) Sure enough, what we see is what we get. He goes to his room. He sees the terrarium has been broken. And again, I think this speaks to what you mentioned about Dustin being his own man. Has no problem picking up the slime of what I think is probably like shedding of some kind. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's a previous layer of skin, you know, like like an animal that molts, you know, and like a snake that just sheds its previous skin as it grows so yeah he's yeah. clearly bigger than we last saw him <laughs> it's disgusting is what it is and that's yeah, i would not touch is. that but i'm not dustin so whatever and i'm gonna confess something to you so yeah depending on how late it is i try to watch these after we record i distinctly <laughs> remember i don't remember falling asleep but i remember being woken up by the loud noise jump scare And then the next thing I see is the camera moving forward with like gross stuff on the ground. And then we see this creature. (laughs) We see Tart 
gnawing at this cat and i'm sad because i love i've got you can see my cat in the background i love animals and i i didn't want to have to watch that the second in fact what i did was i just skipped over that the second time i was like i know what happens i don't need to see that so that was a nice thing to wake up to was this really gross thing and then of course we find out that yeah dart is a demogorgon a little baby demogorgon with his little fanned out face and i'm like oh man it's it's on now it's very much on. or of the uh demogorgon family i think fans dubbed this particular creature a demo dog because it's like on all fours like it's oh, okay. still a demogorgon but it's like whereas the other you know how you called him the slender man in the first season yes it's kind of okay. like a long humanoid looking version of it and maybe it's like an aliens where it depends on the yeah. creature that it the host creature although they don't have hosts but anyway there appears to be different types of just like there's humans and dogs right in, in our world yeah. maybe they're humanoid demogorgons and canine like demogorgons as well so it could be cat <laughs> That's catagorgons what... or mutagorgons oh. <laughs> does me oh no if muse becomes a demogorgon cat no i'm not saying that yeah i mean that that. <laughs> that would be a rip off of alien yeah whatever <laughs> It kills, turns into a version of the... No, that's not what's happening here. Okay. That's but good. yes, it, it clearly is not cute anymore. That's the key. It's no longer Dustin's pet. <laughs> I'm sure that when it's done eating that cat, it will look for bigger prey. And the episode could logically end on that because that's a pretty yeah. shocking ending. But we cut back to the pumpkin patch and Hopper actually discovers after digging so deep, the tunnels that match right. Will's visions. So these are tunnels, not vines. Maybe they're vines, but they're tunnels that have clearly been tunneled out by something. So right. I am led to believe that this stuff that's been burned or that Hawkins lab folks are trying to burn has clearly grown underground and is now spreading that way right. in yeah. ways that are different than what we've been used to in episodes past. So that's where the episode leaves us with this really cool shot of everything going upside down. This was really cool, Adam. And you wouldn't get this if you binge the episodes because Netflix clearly says next episode in 10 oh, seconds yeah. or whatever. It like jumps you right into the, <laughs> the next episode. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. want you watching the credits. <laughs> yeah. So the sound effects that Dart makes, the noises that Dart makes are still playing while the credits roll. And these credits are long. Yeah. And that'll finish the episode, man. That gets us through yeah, it. Yeah, that's, so. that's it. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just add that in this underground tunnel system, we do see that upside down debris. I, I don't know what you would call it, like the floating particles of like, I don't know, skin or ash or whatever it is. Yep. That's, yep. So clearly something has broken out of Hawkins' lab. Maybe that gate is not the only crack all right, and maybe there's one on the other side of that wall that they didn't know about, and it's underground. So there's a lot of possibilities here as to what is going on. But it's interesting that when Dr. Owens was taking Nancy and Jonathan on that tour, did you catch that in the background? You could see all the scientists performing tests on the rotting pumpkins and crops and things. So they were. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, no. they were. They, that's what was sort of going on through the glass mm. kind of doors, windows. So they're still trying to figure out what's causing all this decay okay. surrounding Hawkins' lab. So maybe we'll get a little more explanation in the next episode on that. Maybe so. 
So that'll do it for this episode of AOS. Adam, uh, what is coming up? Episode five, which is chapter five, Dig Dug. That's the name of the episode, Dig Dug. It's also a a game. But uh, it's (laughs) the interesting thing about this episode, which we can talk about more next time after we watch it, is it's directed by Andrew Stanton. I don't know if you know who he is. He directed a lot of Pixar films, including A Bug's Life, Finding Nemo, WALL-E, and he directed John Carter. Oh, uh, okay. The live action film. So he's a pretty big name director and he's written all the Toy Story films or co-wrote all the Toy Story films. So yeah, he's, uh, I'm not sure where he found a connection to Stranger Things. I don't know if, does he know Sean Levy? Does he know the Duffers? And they were like, hey, you want to direct an episode? But he's directing the next one. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with a show like this. Maybe we'll get the Pixar punch like we're used to with with the Pixar movies. Or maybe we'll get to see some Dig Dug being played. I hope we do. We need to get Dig Dug being played. (laughs) That seems like the most likely scenario, that that Dig Dug will play a role in some way. Most episodes seem to have a a title that connects (laughs) to the events in some way, shape, or form. Chapter 5, Joyce Goes to College. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing happens with that. (laughs) Jonathan gets a new car. (laughs) Chapter 6. Yeah, he needs it. He does, man. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys for joining this conversation. As always, I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here.